0: China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS. And this week I'm joined by Chong Xie, a professor in economics at the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business. We'll be discussing his recently co-authored paper, Special Deals with Chinese Characteristics. Changtai, thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks, Jude. So first question is, how did you and your co-authors become interested in this topic? And what was the initial research question or puzzle that you were looking to explain?
1: The puzzle is, we were looking at China in the late 2000s and, uh, and the, you know in 2011, 2012. And the puzzle that had been with us for a while was How do we make sense of, on the one hand, the outcomes that we were seeing from China, this incredible explosion of private businesses, on the one hand, and the policies, which seem to be, if you look at the actual policies on the ground, they seem to us to be really, really, really really dysfunctional. If you think about, say, market reform, and you look at the timing of market reform, most of it really took place in the 1980s. And since then, it does look like, you know, with with some notable exceptions, like with some notable exceptions, but most of, but most things have really gone backwards. So we were trying to articulate what is it that we were seeing with our eyes. The real genesis of this came, it's actually good that we're talking about this when It was in 2012 and 2013 when one person that eventually became a collaborator with us on this project, and I had also done some work with them, was uh, Chong En. And he was asked by the Chinese government to be on this committee to look at the World Bank doing business indicators. Because what had happened was that Wen Jiaobao back in 2012 found out about the World Bank doing business indicators. And in 2012... China's ranking in the World Bank's doing business indicators were even worse than what what, than what they were now. I think it was something like, you know, one of the ratings which I remember that we were trying to understand, like in terms of the ease of starting a business, China was ranked like 180 in the world out of 185 countries in the sample. I mean, you can imagine sort of the puzzle on the part of Chinese leaders. When they're looking at these indicators, what they're seeing is that look, we have all this business that is growing like crazy. How can it be the case that we are you know, we we are ranked 180 in the world. The I remember in the year that we started to look at the data, the Democratic Republic of the Congo. So just to be clear, we we talk about the DRC was ranked 150. Honduras was ranked 80. Was ranked 80. And the, you know, and and if you think about so sort of for the the audience in Washington, nobody talks about businesses in the DRC in the Congo as being a threat to American businesses. Nobody worries about businesses from Haiti. And, and, you know, Haiti was ranked 70 in, in, in the world. So it's sort of interesting now with all this news that's coming up about the World Bank business. There, there was an earlier version of, of, of sort of this discussion back in 2013. So there was a committee that was formed. My co-author Chong Yan, was was the Chinese representative on this committee so it was a committee that was headed by this guy who was the South African finance minister at the time Trevor Manuel I I I believe and they recommended some changes but fundamentally they didn't quite grapple with what was the the thing that didn't make sense about China in terms of the doing business indicators as we know now that it basically rolled and rolled that nothing really fundamentally changed and it ultimately led to the scandal that exploded just a few weeks ago. But in the sense maybe that's one way to think about the puzzle. How can it be ranked 180, way behind Haiti, way behind you know the what we think of as the basket cases of the world? On the one hand, yet, We are talking about China as being the number one threat to some of the most dynamic, some of the most innovative American companies. So how can we try to make sense? What exactly is the Chinese model? And if you were to think about, so I would say that there are roughly two stories that were there at the time, which is really the story about, well you know, I I would say like the dominant view among my colleagues at the University of Chicago was that it's it's obviously about market reform. Uh, It's obviously just about market reform. But that story doesn't seem quite right to me because when I look at what has actually happened, most of that was basically went away by the early 1990s. And there's also an I would say another dominant story, which has become even more dominant now, which is the story that, oh, it's all about state capitalism, right? It's, it's it's all about state capitalism. It's all about this central planning, state on firms, Chinese industrial policy, which I would say roughly is the dominant narrative in Washington now. But when, you, when we looked at the facts on the ground, that also made no sense to us. It, it also made no sense because if you look at sort of the, the long run trajectory in China, it's that the state-owned firms have been shrinking. Like the, the size of the sector, and then any piece of empirical evidence that one looks at is that what you find is that state-owned firms basically they are generally inefficient. They use resources inefficiently, they use resources inefficient. So it's really hard when you look at the facts on the ground to say that it's really about state capitalism. I mean, that that is there. So what we were trying to articulate is what was it that we were seeing with our eyes? What was it we were seeing with our eyes? And, and then to try to come up, and what we were seeing with our eyes, which is well known to anybody who, who was doing business in uh, China, you know, 10 years ago, and it's even true now, it's even true now, is that all of the dynamism was coming from what these thousands of local governments were doing, right? And we were trying to just come up with a, with an intellectual framework on how to make sense of that. And that was this paper.
0: For folks who haven't read the paper, we'll have a, a, a link to it which I which I recommend you do. The puzzle that we're wading into here is how to explain this high growth economy, very dynamic, with a you know, growing, proliferating private sector, but without many of the formal institutional protections which a lot of classical economic theory and, and political science say would be a prerequisite for that dynamism and, and economic growth. So that gets us to the, the title of this paper, which is on this idea of special deals. Um, so I thought I'd, I'd start there by asking you, before we get into the specifics of your paper, what is a special deal? And I think related to that, are, are special deals something we're only seeing in China or do special deals crop up in other economies as well?
1: What is a special deal? A special deal is I will call it an informal arrangement that comes out of a bilateral negotiation between two parties. It's not something that is articulated in the rules. It is something that I think once you start to think about it, it's something that we see everywhere in the world. So China is certainly not special in terms of that. What is different about china is the scale of the special deals it's three things i would say so one is that the scale of the special deals number 2 it is the ease at which these in which you could put these special deals together and three once you make the special deals the ability of in the case of China, of the local government to execute in terms of, 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 you know, whenever they make a deal, they make a deal, it's whether they follow through on their side of the deal. Or to maybe a to try to think about this more generally, I would say that to go back to the World Bank doing business indicators, I think the way that I would articulate it is that what they were trying to measure are the formal rules, the rules that are written down on paper. But if you do business, like, and and this is, it's not just true of China, but it's true almost anywhere else in the world, that there always is this parallel system of what I'm going to call informal rules. It's hard to measure, but, and, and then, and then the question is, I think for most countries in the world, the question is how well does that informal system work? And in terms of what is different about China, it's that the way that the informal system works, it works differently than what you see in many other places in the world. That in almost sometimes the way I say it is that the informal system is so clear, so transparent, works so smoothly. So I'm, I'm talking about the world from 10 years ago that it almost is like the formal system. And it's something that everybody understands what the rules of that informal system is.
0: So it's a de facto clear system that anyone operating in the environment would know observably or intuitively, but you couldn't go find it written down in any local, local rule book or, or regulation, correct?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. No. And,
0: and I guess the other thing I'm hearing you saying is this informal special deal system could be growth augmenting, not necessarily growth inhibiting.
1: I don't want to say that it's necessarily growth. It's that there aren't growth inhibiting aspects of it because I do think that there are parts of it that, that are growth inhibiting. But I think the on balance, as of China, you know, I think about China from ten years ago. I would say relative to the counterfactual, I, I guess maybe the way to think about it is what is the alternative, right? Like, so relative to the alternative of having no special deals. And going back to the world of 1991, I say, absolutely, it was growth enhancing. Now, you can imagine a different scenario in in which if 1989 had turned out a different way, then that alternative would have turned out to be even better, to have been better. But it didn't happen, right? It, It didn't happen. So relative to the world, to where China was back in 1991, and then that's sort of the early 1990s as my Roughly my timing of sort of when this thing started to grow.
0: And just for you know, for maybe for listeners, some of the context here maybe some of the work by, you know, Huang Yasheng, who makes the argument that, you know, the real robust market liberalizations ended in the period after nineteen eighty-nine when China moved ahead with, with capitalism, but a much more authoritarian type of capitalism. You know, Chang I wanted to ask you two questions. One is if you could walk me through a Chinese a special deal with Chinese characteristics from two sides. The first side is I'm a Chinese firm. How do I come into and gain access to a special deal? And a related question is, obviously special deals are scarce resources, otherwise they wouldn't be special. They would just be universal deals. So how is a firm in a you know coming into a Chinese city, how do I position myself to get beneficial treatment by the by the local government? Is it connections? you know, is there some other way that I can get to the head of the queue such that I'm favored over another firm?
1: Let me give you a description on what happens and what I see happening on both sides. So there was a city that we visited back in the summer of 2013 or 2014. It was a small, like what the Chinese call a third-tier city in southern China. The person that we knew in that city was the vice mayor of the education department. So the person's official job was, was to run the public schools. It became very clear that although this was this person's official title and this was an efficient job response, but that is not what this person was doing with his time. What he was doing with, with his time was that he was spending almost all of his time soliciting business. So, both soliciting business and then basically of the businesses that had set up in the city, making sure that these businesses had everything that they needed to do, that everything that these businesses need in order to operate. And then when we looked more into the city, it was clear that it wasn't just him that was doing it, but it was basically everybody in the local party bureaucracy that was doing the same thing. So, it was it was him, the vice mayor of education, the vice mayor in charge of the uh, population planning department. That was the largest bureau. That was a body in charge of implementing the one-child uh, the, the one policy. But basically, everybody up and down the bureaucracy was uh, doing this. In the paper you describe, we reproduce a flowchart that was given to us by the chief of staff of the vice mayor, in which the person told us proudly, "This is what we do," right? and it was basically a flow chart that described, you know, the steps that they go through in order to do two things, to solicit businesses to come to to come to come their city. And then after these businesses are set up in their city to basically do everything that they can to make sure that these businesses have everything that they need in, in order to grow. So I guess the first part of the question is that at the level of the local government, the way that you want to think about it is that when you go to a city, you basically have everybody in the local party, in the local party bureaucracy do everything they can to get you to set up in their city. So it's, it's not quite the way that you put it, which is what do I have to do to get them to pay uh, attention to me? The way that you want to understand what was going on was that Everybody in the city is chasing after your business. And it's not just everybody in the city is chasing after your business, but then you have 2,000 other cities that are also ferociously chasing after your your business.
0: Can I flip it then and say, okay, so I'm, I'm a vice mayor, I'm a party secretary. What is the tangible benefit or benefits that this rabid competition to bring companies to set up establishments and for me to capture their attention and potential tax base. Why does that so important to me as, a, as an official at a, at a municipality or province?
1: You know, Jude, that's a great question. That's a good question. And I, I don't think there's a clear answer. I'll give you two answers. Let me just say that if you were to mention, this is what local governments do with anybody in the party bureaucracy, everybody's gonna say, of course, right? Uh, of course, this is what what, what we do. I would say that the official narrative of uh, then you ask, why is it that they're doing this? And then they will say that they do this because this is viewed as central for the development of the country and this is viewed for the, the, the for, for a central to the party. And if they show that they can do this, they they, they show that they they can do this, then this is one of the key things that is measured by the organization department of the Communist Party. And if you show that you are successful at doing this, then you get promoted. Then you get promoted. So so for the reader, for the people in the audience I don't know, the organization department of the Communist Party, you may want to think about that as the personal arm of the Chinese Communist Party that collects data, that interviews, and that... I don't want to say that it decides on the promotions, but but formally it is the body that at least announces the promotion decisions. What are the politics behind what they do is a separate question altogether. That's one narrative. They do this because the Chinese Communist Party operates like, like the personnel arm of General Electric 10 years ago. It's like one giant functioning, well-functioning corporation where... They recruit talented people into the party. They develop their skills. They rotate people through different positions. They test and they get them to acquire skills. And one of the key skills that they're, that they're asked to develop is the ability to develop business. That's one narrative. The other narrative, which, which is sort of the one that we don't... I guess if you were to ask me, so this is my own personal view. It's not the view of my co... Not the view of my co-authors, is that what you also get with this is that there are tremendous opportunities for personal gain. Because the thing that is really striking, what you see, what, what you saw in China at the time, is that you see everybody in the party bureaucracy doing this, even people who are at the very lowest tiers and that realistically have no chance of ever getting promoted, but they're still doing this. They're still putting all their energy. Or you see this people who are old and they were they're just about to hit mandatory retirement. So they they know for sure that they're never go, they're never going to get but, And they're still doing the same thing. So I guess that's one piece of evidence that it's some other motive, other than the probability of getting promoted up the party bureaucracy, that is causing them to do
0: this. So might that like the, if I facilitate you know i'm a i'm a soon to be retired take your hard case your your edge cases of a young of a young cadre with no real meaningful promotion prospects or a, you know about to age out is my incentive here that in facilitating this i might get equity or, or some type of investment stake in some of these companies or there's some other rent that i'm able to capture from facilitating you know market entry or or bringing this business in From
1: just the anecdotal stuff that I've seen, I I, I see very little in terms of explicit bribes, in terms of explicit passing of money, that it takes the form of equity sharing. Like there's a company that is set up and there's a 20% share of the company. Most of the time, it's not directly held by the person, it's held by somebody else. You know, that that is ties, that that, that is tied. So maybe the way that I would say this is that I've been asked this question uh, a few times. That is, okay. What you're describing sounds like rent-seeking and corruption. Would you? And in a sense, that's absolutely correct. And I would say that the key, that's absolutely right. Then I, you would ask, what is it that is different about this process in China, the way that it works in China, versus the way that something similar works in lots of other places in the world? And I would say that the key thing that seems to be different about China is that you collect rents only after you generate the rents in the first place. You only have something to take. Only after you enable the growth of the business that generates profits, so that there's something, so that that company is worth something. If, what you create is not worth anything, then there's nothing for you. You mentioned Ya book, right? The question there is that, if you want to think think about that particular narrative is, you could almost close your eyes in that book, and then you could take out the word China and just substitute country X, Venezuela, or, or whatever country. And the book would look almost the same, right? They look almost like that or Nigeria or any other country. So the question is, what is it that makes China different? And I would say that it's, it's really how this system plays out.
0: By the way, I, I was just thinking of another interesting, and I don't know if any work has been done on this, but you were mentioning, you know, kind of this white glove role that if someone has equity, if an official has equity in a company, it's usually not under their name or even necessarily under their kid's name. It could be a, a another acquaintance. I've always wondered about the informal institutions of trust that must be needed to facilitate that. Because, of course, if if I'm holding the equity stake of, you know, you know you're the, you're the vice mayor of some city and you you have Jude Blanchett holding your equity stake that way it's not in your name. I've always wondered how they facilitate that at scale because there would there would need to be a lot of trust or sort of mutually assured destruction now that I'm actually holding your equity because it's legally mine. But I've always thought that that's an interesting the kind of the, the informal institutions around that white glove phenomenon are pretty interesting about how do, how do you enforce loyalty of the white glove. Because they actually technically own your asset or, or your equity, I thought. I thought is interesting.
1: It's an interesting question. So you may have read the book that everybody is talking about, the the book Red, Red Roulette. So so one part of the book was basically describing how when the couple bought the three percent share of uh, Ping An Insurance, a third of that belonged to uh, Wen Jiabao's wife. But for, for the first year, that one-third share was not in her name, was not in her name, that it, it was kept in the name of the couple, of the couple in, in the book. And then at some point, she decided that she didn't want it to be in, in, in their name, so they transferred it to to the name of, I think it was it was Wen Jiabao's mom? And it was, that was their fatal mistake. That was their fatal mistake. So once it became, well, well, once it got transferred to the name of Wajabal's well, mom, then the New York Times was able to track, was able to track them down. right? So there's something happened, right? She said, well, you know, I don't quite trust this.
0: But it's, it's fascinating because then, you know, I guess in that instance, they were quite willing to sort of transfer that equity less because there was a probably more because of the the possibility of misfortune or violence being befallen on them because they were holding equity for, for, for Wen Bao's wife, uh, which comes with an implicit threat. But nonetheless, I it would imagine it, it must be a fairly sophisticated national system to facilitate this at at the scale that it is undoubtedly being facilitated. You know, Chungta, I wanted to, you know, moving forward with, you know, some of the investigation here. So we've kind of laid out special deals you know, from the side of the firm. And as you were saying, it's less that the firms are going out and competing for special deals. It's more that you have the other side of the the equation, which is officials in this rampant competition trying to attract these firms. One of the companies that you profile in the paper, the the main one that you profile is this East Hope Group, which I have to admit I'd never heard of. And is just absolutely fascinating and a window into kind of conglomerate structures uh, in China. I wonder if you can tell me a little bit about East Hope Group. What made this such an interesting case study for you and, and how were you able to sort of gather up a, a, a picture of its overall operations. And I should say, just as a, a statistic that you cite in here, which I find endlessly fascinating to look at on the page, is you guys have gathered data on the, the number of firms within the top 100 Chinese conglomerates 1995 compared to 2015 and in 1995 the average number of kind of subsidiary firms in a in one of these big 100 conglomerates was 500 which already is an eye-watering number but that it, it metastasized to 15,000 by 2015 so you know East Hope as one of these big conglomerates what did you learn you know investigating this company and and just from like a, a corporate governance perspective how does the leadership of East Hope Group have any idea what's happening out at the furthest tentacles, you know, of the conglomerate structure?
1: Let me answer the question. So the reason we started to look at East Hope Group was because it came about, we were looking at Chinese industrial policy at the time, which was the what the Chinese called their the strategic and emerging industry. So think of this as the precursor the goals of that were were the same were the same in terms of the goal was to basically make chinese companies the leaders in these set of industries the industries were different i mean it, and it just reflects the view uh, how the views of what were the important industries so the the strategic industries back then were things like cars steel when we looked at that this first version of chinese industrial policy let let me just say also that the way that they, uh, the, that they wanted to implement this industrial policy was that it, instead of using the current system of subsidies, large subsidies to these sectors, the way that they, they, they wanted to do it was to reserve these sectors for a subset of state-owned firms. So the idea is that, for example, for cars, you know, only six state-owned uh, firms were allowed to produce cars. In aluminum, only one company was allowed to be in that sector, which is a state-owned firm called the China Aluminum Corporation. What, what, What we started to look at was, when you look at what actually happened, despite sort of what the goal was, what you saw was that the share of the state sector in every one of these industries, with one exception, fell like a rock. So basically, what we saw was these massive violations of what the central planners were trying to do. And at the same time, what you saw was, you know, lots of productivity growth that was taking place. And then we looked at East Hope Group because East Hope Group was was one of the companies that was behind what we were seeing. It was one of the very first private firms that set up in the uh, aluminum sector. And it was basically fighting, it it was going up against the monopoly of the China uh, Aluminum Corporation. And basically the story of what happened was that there was this Chinese company called the Hope Group, and it, it was founded by four brothers. And think of the company uh, as the Archer Daniel Midlands of China. Mostly what, what it did was that its biggest business was to distribute pig feed. That's what it did. Uh, and, and then in the early 2000s, the four brothers, they, they went their separate ways, and they split up the company. And one of the, the brothers, this gentleman called Liu Yongxin, he took his company and renamed it the East Hope Group. He was looking at China then, and he saw that there was huge potential in heavy metals. And he basically looked at aluminum and he said, look, you know, there's booming demand for aluminum. There's one really inefficient company that controls 99% of the market. I can do much better. And then the main problem that he had was that what he wanted to do was illegal. It was a direct violation of state industrial policy. And not just that, that when the China aluminum corporation went public or public in the Western sense, like it went through an IPO in 2002, one of the things that happened as as part of the IPO was that China passed a law that said that only the state-owned firm was allowed to buy uh, aluminum, so, oh, oh, but by the raw material behind it. So the, the goal was to make the IPO more uh, attractive in order to, co- by consolidating the monopoly power of the China uh, aluminum corporation. What East Hope did is that it they understood the system, and they understood the fact that China's main reserves of bauxite were basically sitting in this belt in western uh, Henan province, and they understood that the local party secretaries were very unhappy with state-led industrial policy because what what state industrial policy meant for them was that they were selling their stuff at below market prices. Mm -hmm. They they were forced to sell the China aluminum corporation. So what he did is that he went to this small city in Western Henan province, to this small obscure city called Samenshan, The main thing that Sam and Shah had were two things. One is that they sat on top of one of the biggest reserves of the metal that goes into uh, aluminum. They also had access to cheap electricity. So East Hope formed a joint venture with a state-owned company in the city. Together, they created the first quasi-private aluminum company. And the China Aluminum Corporation fought them every step of the way, but their jurisdiction or the political power of the China uh, aluminum corporation did not extend to this small city. So the way to think about what the East Hope Group did is that it leveraged the resources and what that city had to basically break into the monopoly of the China aluminum corporation. So the company came online in 2006, and it wasn't just them, but it was a couple of other companies that were doing the same thing. And within a period of three to four years, despite the, all of the intention of, of uh, Chinese industrial policy, the market share of the China aluminum culture fell from 99% to 40%. And that, I think, I, the, the reason we tell that story, I think it's, it's twofold to illustrate how sort of what people think of as Chinese industrial policy is something that I think has really held China back. Luckily for China, I guess, in this period... There was no execution. There was no follow through of the industrial policy precisely because of what this other part of, of the Chinese government was doing, which is that all these state, all these local governments, they were looking at this and they say, this makes no sense for me. And they formed these partnerships with guys, with companies like the East Hope Group. And they basically broke into the... They, uh, and I think the consequence of that, I think that this has been on net good for China, that it's led to tremendous productivity growth in the aluminum industry in China. And it's not, and then you could tell the same story in the paper. We tell the story about cars, that it didn't turn out to be the case that the six state owned firms kept their monopoly on, on the car industry. What you saw was lots of entry by private players using the same playbook that the East Hope Group did. So that's why we tell a story. And then I guess the other thing to go back to the earlier point was that for the local officials in and Shah, this was like mana from heaven. It wasn't that you have to go begging to these guys. They wanted desperately to make this happen. It's a good question why they, 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 they were desperate to make this happen. But in terms of what you see them doing, they were working 24-7 to get this deal off the ground.
0: You know, I wanted to, Jungtai, just maybe bringing together a few threads here as we kind of close out the conversation. I wanted to fast forward all of, you know, this really amazing narratives and insights that you've drawn up on these investigations and do a little bit of speculation on where this sits now, this story sits now in 2021 after 10 years of Xi Jinping. And I guess my two questions are, on the issue of industrial policy, it almost seems to me like Xi Jinping is aware of some of the weaknesses and gaps of industrial policy and some of the shortcomings from a a, too much of a decentralized approach. And so it seems that there's quite a concerted effort now to sort of reforge industrial policy 3.0 You just had a really good piece, a rerun by David Barboza in The Wire, but uh, was Project Syndicate before that. I think arguing that our focus here on the strengths of industrial policy or what we perceive to be the strengths of industrial policy here in the West overlooks some of the pronounced inefficiencies and downsides of it. Do you think Xi Jinping will be able to overcome some of these kind of structural limitations of political guidance of capital that comes through industrial policy? Or do you see these as enduring weaknesses in the system that will act as a drag on productivity and growth?
1: Let me try to get some clarification on your question. What do you mean political guidance? You mean the central government's industrial policy or you, do you mean what the local governments do?
0: Okay. So let me add a an, an initial question is, is the room for local action shrinking under Xi Jinping as he's using discipline campaigns to try to ensure more cadres are looking to Beijing for direction as the anti-corruption campaign likely is policing the boundaries of, of special deals. And then finally, Xi Jinping seems to believe that there's too much on the line in terms of the, the high priority sectors, that Beijing needs to be calling more of the shots on industrial policy. How does that affect the story that you've been telling, both in terms of what the structure of you know, actual existing industrial policy at the local level looks at, but as a second question, the overall efficacy of industrial policy moving forward?
1: So in terms of the first question, I would say that in one sense, China is still a system of special deals. It has changed in the following way. that is it's changed in the way that 10 years ago, it was enough to get the support of some local party leader. What I see now is that because of the changes, that, that the political changes that, that have taken place, that is no longer enough. It's no longer enough to get the support of a local party leader, that you need to get somebody that is higher up in the party bureaucracy. But when you look at, say, you know, when you look at all the things that are, like, you know, just a few weeks ago, you probably know that there's a bankruptcy case involving the Hainan Group. There's this company that was just appointed to take over the airline assets of the Hain, Hainan Group, and it's this company called the uh, Fanta uh, Liaoning Group. That yeah. looks to me just another case of special deals. Like It's another case of, of, of special deals. It's just that the, there's been a change in like, who has to get access to the special deals? Who do you need to access in, in order to get this, the special deals? So. What I see in China now is that it's it's become more difficult, that you need to get the support of a local party leader, but that doesn't give you enough protection. You need to get access to somebody that is higher up as well. The other change that I see is that local leaders, they're now, because of the, uh, you know, 10 years ago, all they were doing with their time is that they were, they were putting these deals together. Now, I see them spending their time, much more of their time on other things, like, political study sessions. on, on, um, And there's more of this fear of being accused of corruption that makes them much more cautious about what they are doing. To your second question about industrial policy, you know, I see the industrial policy as just being a continuation of the earlier version of industrial policy. So I, I don't, I I think that there always has been this sense that there are sectors that cannot be left to the market. There are sectors, you know, that, I mean that. And so I don't think there's there's been any change in that, right? So I I guess I don't see this this current version of industrial policy as being that different as, as saying anything different about what the Chinese leaders are thinking. I do see this version of industrial policy as being far more dangerous because it's not about restrictions on entry. It's about free cash. And what I see local governments are doing is that what you saw them doing before was that they were basically trying to break the Chinese industrial policy. Now, because it's free cash, they're saying, you know, why are we going to try breaking it? Let's just, let's just try to take some of that free cash. So what I see local governments are doing is that instead of trying to fight it, what they're doing now is that they are they are reinforcing the worst tendencies of Chinese industrial because who doesn't like free cash? Whereas before there was only cash if you broke Chinese industrial policy. But now there's cash if you follow the guidance of Chinese industrial policy. And I, I guess my view on it is, is that sort of both versions of a Chinese and of central government industrial policy ultimately would are bad for China but China was lucky in the sense that the first version was basically not implemented. But the second one lo- looks like it will be.
0: The um, Commerce Secretary a few days ago made a comment that uh, – we'll just close on this for your final observation. But the Commerce Secretary the other day said that U.S. has an effort to try to slow down Chinese innovation. The U.S. government also says it has a problem with Chinese industrial policy and the effect that that has on U.S. companies, would I be interpreting your position correctly to say that if you are genuinely looking to slow down Chinese innovation and productivity, then you would want a proliferation of industrial policy because it drags down on on Chinese growth? Yeah,
1: that's exactly, I mean, I, I mean, just to refer to my op-ed that that, that you mentioned, I I guess I didn't say this explicitly, but the implication of what I'm saying is that if you really want to stop Chinese innovation, then what you want to do is that you want to encourage Chinese to do more industrial policy and you want them to support more more state-owned firms. That is, if you really are concerned about that, let's bring China back to where it was in 1978. That solves the problem. So it's, yeah, so I do find, if you want to talk more about it, I I do find that, that U.S. policy towards China is, not quite sure how to describe it, that it's, my I guess is that it's, in some sense, it's schizophrenic. That is, on the one hand, it's thinking about China in the same way that it thought about Japan in the 1980s. But on the other hand, so I guess maybe, maybe the way I put it is that there seems to be this schism in terms of how I think the U.S. national security apparatus thinks about China, which is about the threat posed by these powerful private companies, right? So I think about Huawei as being what, one uh, example. And then on the other side, there's this economic apparatus of U.S. policy, like you know. So I, I would say the USTR, the the Commerce Department, and it's this quite can't, can't quite articulated. It's almost this formulaic view of what is it that poses a danger for the US and not recognizing what sort of what the threat is as espoused by by the people from the national security side. So you've got to decide, you know, what is it that you think the real threat is. And once you articulate what the real threat is, then you can decide on the right set of policies. But yeah, I mean, that's effectively what I'm saying, that if you really think that the threat is about Chinese innovation, if you're successful at getting China to do what you're telling them to do, then that makes the problem
0: worse. Tai, thank you so much. I, I, I just learned so much from the paper, although admittedly I skipped all over all the equations during the middle half of the paper, but this this was really just a a fascinating paper and a fascinating discussion and definitely shifted my view on how I think about what I call state capitalism, where the locus of action is. And so I just can't recommend the paper enough. So really thank you for, for all your work and thank you very much for your, your time today.
1: Okay, thanks Jude, that was a lot of fun. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chess Board,